Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you are the God that we can pray to, that we are the God, you are the God who saves us, that you are the God that we worship, that you're the God who's fair and just and merciful and forgiving. And Lord, we're thankful for this time to be in your presence, and we give the rest of this evening to you as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may have a seat. How many of you were at this same uh, weekend two years ago? Oh, yeah, most of you. Do you remember where we met on Saturday night? We met in the dining hall because that day it hit 111 degrees at Mount Hermon. People who even uh, lived here for 50-some years can never remember a hotter day ever in history. And we went over there in the air-conditioned uh, area. And at about 7 o'clock that night in here, it was clocked at 103 uh, but tonight, a little bit better than that. But hi, everybody out there. Good to see you. Hope you enjoy out there. Uh, of, of the three talks that I'm giving this week and going through Luke chapter 6 and Jesus' sermon, tonight uh, definitely has been the most challenging for me personally, and a lot of that has to do with my own upbringing. So I want to share a little bit about my, my past with you. I, I have here a, a symbol of my, my upbringing. This is a box. I did not grow up in a box, but I grew up in, a, in an environment that was very black and white and very defined. There was no gray. It was black and white. It was right or wrong. There was no wiggle room pretty much at all when it came to various matters that I was taught in the home I grew up in. Uh, just to help you understand a little bit about my, my upbringing, um, my parents were definitely on the same page, but my dad was certainly the driver of the, the home and in, in the standards that we, we had. And I, I would say a loving home and a nurturing home, and yet at the same time, a, a legalistic and judgmental home that I grew up in. So my dad was a CPA, he's retired now, uh, an accountant. He, he fits that well, very predictable. Um, he had a, on Monday he wore this particular suit, Tuesday a second suit, Thursday a different suit, Friday, Thursday, then Friday. And then at the end of a year he would get rid of the Friday suit and buy a new suit and move everyone down uh, so they had a new Monday suit and on down. Every suit got used for five years. On Monday he went to this particular restaurant for lunch uh, and ordered a certain thing on Tuesday, this restaurant, Wednesday, this one, Thursday, Friday. When he came home, he had a regiment where he walked in and said hi to my mom and gave her a kiss and talked a little bit about their day. And he went into his room, got changed, and then he came out and had time for the kids. He was regimented. We always knew when he was leaving the house in the morning, almost the same time every time, because he blew his nose and he had a certain sound. And we knew dad was out the door after he had that sound and, and blew his nose and off, off he went um, his daily routine was just settled, and it just fit with uh, the, a, a box in so many ways. He helped shape my box more than anybody else, for sure, in, in, in my life. Huh. I was never told these words, but I felt them strongly, and that is that it's not possible to be a good Christian and to drink alcohol. There's no, no possible way. And then I went off to college, to a Christian college, and I had some friends who were like dynamic Christians and loved the Lord, and I respected them. And then I found out 
that not only did they grow up in a home that drank alcohol, but maybe they themselves drank alcohol, and that didn't fit in my box. And, and then I was told growing up, basically, that if you were a Methodist, you weren't getting in <laughs> to heaven, and if you were Presbyterian, maybe. If you were Episcopal, there's not a chance, because us Baptists fit in this box. And then I went into my doctoral program and through Gordon Conwell and around me were guys from the AME church and Episcopal priests and and there was Presbyterian pastors and my mentor of all things was a Methodist. And I sat with those guys and I began to get to know them, and I began to see how much they loved the Lord and how devoted they were to God's word and how committed they were to the service of the Lord, and it didn't fit in my box. In fact, I'm convinced that there's no way that I could be the leader of this non-denominational ministry if it hadn't been for God putting me in that doctoral program with those particular guys. So I would have maybe a different shape of my box. I could talk about movies, I could talk about, or the, or the lack of movies, <laughs> um, I could talk about language that was used, I could talk about modesty of dress, but, but, but you get the idea. However, I'm deeply grateful for my upbringing and for my parents. I love them a lot, godly people. In fact, they're the ones who brought us here every summer. And I mean every summer, beginning at age six, and here they are. This is a year ago, mom and dad, this is 60 years before that on their wedding day. Mom and dad, they live down in LA area, and they're in a retirement center now. Mom has severe Parkinson's, and dad has some dementia. But every single summer, they brought us here, and... Made that a priority. In fact, to this day, the whole extended family still comes. A few weeks ago, there was 26 of us that were here. Mom and dad still pay for everybody, for everybody. Although my dad's still trying to get a refund for me for all the years that I came. (laughs) My parents were very present. Uh, They came to my games, uh, choir concerts, very involved with our lives, uh, did family devotions, went on family vacations. They took us to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. When we went on vacation, we always went to a church no matter what town we were in because God does not take a Sunday off and we are not taking a Sunday off. So we went to some little tiny churches and some little tiny towns and we hated it. And uh, <laughs> as kids, but my, my, my parents wanted to live a holy life before a holy God, and they lived by their principles. They weren't perfect, but they weren't hypocritical. What they taught us, they, they acted out. So I'm grateful. Even though my box today is a little bit different shaped than this box that I grew up in. But it makes it very challenging for me to teach on this particular subject as I'm probably skewed in some weird ways, or maybe I'm the best person, uh, possibly not the very best, but to speak on these things. You know, some people today stay away from Christianity because of the box that they perceive it to be. 
They completely stay away from it because they think it's a, it's a, a box full of, of rules and it's rigid and it's black and white and there's no gray. And they want nothing to do with it because of the black and white rigidity nature of it. And yet, if you really get to know Jesus and you get to know the true teachings of the scriptures, you might actually be very surprised by what you will find. You must understand this to get this sermon. Jesus, if you remember from last night, he's just called his disciples and he is teaching them a different way than they were taught by the religious leaders of that day, and that's the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had a black and white box that was rigid and full of rules. And not only was there the original God rules, but they put a bunch of other rules around those rules to protect the original rules. And they had so many rules by the time things got going that it was just rule after rule after rule. And they would condemn and judge those who did not follow their rules. The problem is that their box wasn't God's box, but they thought it was. They really did believe that the box that they held was God's box. And so when they were trying to adhere to the rules of it, that they even added so many rules to it, they believed that they were doing it on behalf of God. So Jesus comes upon the scene, and he's got a different box. And it's probably, I think one of the reasons the common people loved him and were drawn to him so much, because his box was, was, was different. And it drew the, just the ire of the religious leaders of the day, and they just butt heads throughout Jesus' ministry on earth because they had different boxes. Because the Pharisees thought that they were adhering to God's box, but what they didn't realize is that Jesus is actually the box. Jesus is the box. So take your Bibles and turn them to Luke chapter 6. You get in your New Testament, the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, then Luke chapter 6, and we're talking about things that are counterintuitive. Last night we looked at love your enemies, and that's certainly counterintuitive, that which goes against what's natural to us, and tonight we're going to be looking at judge not, do not judge other people, which can be counterintuitive as well. We're going to be looking at verses 37 through 42. But I want to start in the middle at verses 39 and 40 because Jesus targets here the religious leaders and the issues that he had with them. And we need to understand that to get this whole section. So jump into verse 39 in the middle of this in Luke chapter 6. Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? He's talking about the religious leaders. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. He gives them two insights here. The first one being, blind people shouldn't be leading blind people. Verse 39, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? So let's, let's work this out. I'm going to need two volunteers it's funny, when we ask kids for volunteers, every hand goes up. So let me just describe, because adults need to know what you're up against before you would volunteer. I understand that. So, okay, I have two blindfolds. The two people who volunteer, both of them will have a blindfold, okay? And your, your goal is to get over to the Welcome Center and back by one leading the other there. 
completely blindfolded. Now with this, I have a waiver that you must sign first <laughs> to, you know, so you won't sue us because bodily harm is a very good possibility in this exercise. How many would like to volunteer for this? Yeah, there's always one in the crowd. Sorry. I mean, it's, it's nuts, right, to have two people blindfolded going off and one leading the other. That's what Jesus says about the leaders of the, the day, that they were blind spiritually. They thought they saw God closely. These are the, the religious leaders, remember? He said they're blind spiritually, and they're leading people who spiritually couldn't see as well. And this is a disastrous combination. Their box was wrong. And if you follow a blind person, and you're blind... You're going to end up in the pit, it says. You're going to fall into a ditch. Secondly, the Pharisee spiritual leadership greatly concerned Jesus because of a very fundamental principle, and that is this in leadership, that people become like their leaders, so be careful who you follow. People become like their leaders, so be careful who you follow. Verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. There's um, two verses in 1 Corinthians that used to bug me a lot. They're from the Apostle Paul. I used to think these were just very arrogant statements, and I didn't understand them for a long time. The first one is in chapter 4, where he says, be imitators of me. And then the second is in chapter 11, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I thought, well, that's a little bit better. But shouldn't he be saying, be imitators of Christ as I am, instead of be imitators of me like I am of Christ? And it bugged me, seriously, for, for years, until I figured out, I think, what he was saying, and that's this, that people follow people. People do. They follow people. That's why the Bible has strict standards of who the leaders should be spiritually, because it matters who is leading, because if people follow them, want them to end up looking like Christ. In fact, my own leadership mantra that I have, and it's on my desk, is, is this, as goes the leader, so goes the follower. We see it throughout history. And in, in Jewish religious culture, it was the goal of the rabbis to get their disciples, their followers, to think like them and to act like them. The blind leading the blind, and you're going to become just like your teacher, and they wanted them to think like them and act like them. By the way, that's the same goal of Jesus, that we would think and act like him as followers of him, as disciples of him. So, Jesus expects his disciples to be different than the Pharisees and their leadership, and therefore he lays out for them four expectations that we see in verse, verses 37 and 38. So back up to 37 and 38. Jesus says to them, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it, 
will be measured back to you. So, four expectations for his leaders. Expectation number one is judge not. Don't judge. Don't judge. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Verse 37. It has been said that this verse is the most quoted verse of the entire Bible from non-Christians. Judge not, lest you be judged. That's what your own Bible says. Hmm. So I grew up in Southern California, and back in those days, I'm going to say it publicly, I was a Dodger fan. Now, for some of you that have problems with that because you have a giant thing in your life, um, I moved to Colorado, and then when we moved there, I then eventually became a Rockies fan. And I, my brother, we're not a threat to anybody, okay? We're in last place. You can go anywhere with Rockies gear and nobody cares. Seriously. <laughs> but, um, by the way, for you Giant fans, just so you know, biblically, There's nothing positive said about a giant in the entire Bible, all right? Just so you know. Did you mute me, Thud? No, okay. <laughs> but this guy gave Jane and I these amazing tickets once at Dodger Stadium, back when we still lived in Southern California. I mean amazing. Literally, if I put my feet up from the chair, they would be on the Dodger dugout. Right at the end, closer to home plate. I mean, phenomenal seats. And... and the game was, the first half of the inning had already been done, the top of the first. Now the bottom of the first is about to get ready, the pitchers, you know, throwing his warm-up. And, and the on-deck circle, this is 20-some years ago, on the on-deck circle is a guy named Brett Butler. He's a Christian. He was also a friend with a guy that was on the team named Daryl Strawberry. Daryl Strawberry, great, you know, megastar in the major leagues. Um, he had just gotten suspended for drug use. And uh, it was big news, national news, and Brett Butler had stood up for him and things like that. And so while Butler is on the on-deck circle warming up as the pitcher is warming up to get ready for the bottom of the first inning, there's this guy about three seats down from us who is heckling Butler and saying stuff about Daryl Strawberry and how can you be his friend and how can you stand up for him, blah, 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 blah. And you think, you know, athletes don't hear stuff, they don't say stuff, right? But Brett Butler drops his bat turns around, and he says to him, who are you to judge? There is only one judge. Picks up his bat, keeps warming up, goes up to bat. I don't remember if he hit the ball, struck out. I don't remember. I remember that comment so well that day. Jesus' words, don't judge, they beg a lot of questions, at least they do for me. So, should a person not hold to any standards or strong convictions of what is right and wrong, if we're not to judge? Is tolerance to be embraced? Does anything go? Are there no rules? My deep concern for us today, actually, as Christians, is that we have swung a pendulum. Although we still have a rap for being intolerant of many things, in many ways, I'm concerned about a pendulum swing away from some level of judgment to anything goes intolerance. 
So let me keep asking some questions like this. Are the commands of God no longer in effect? Is the Bible obsolete? Have we allowed culture to dictate what sin is and what is permissible? Have you noticed that rarely does anybody use the word sin anymore, but usually it's the word now mistake? I made a mistake. Isn't a mistake an oops, like a, you know, a lapse in judgment, but isn't sin like a premeditated choice? Jesus says, judge not. And if we are not to judge sin, then how do we grapple with like what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 about a situation where an a individual in the church in Corinth was having sexual relations with his stepmother, and it says, by Paul writes to them, and he says, you become arrogant by letting this guy just get away with this. If you're not going to judge him, I judge him. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 5. So what do we do with all of this? Jesus is not recommending the toleration or embracing of sin. That goes against his holy nature. Jesus is not saying that everything goes. What he's actually saying is this. As a sinful human being, we have no right to be the judge of other sinful human beings. He's the judge because he's the one without sin. We'll unpack that as we go. Don't judge. Expectation number one of the leaders. Expectation number two, don't condemn. Verse 37. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. To condemn means to pronounce as guilty. The Pharisees were quick to condemn those who did not fit in their black and white box, but to pronounce someone guilty is not our job, according to Jesus. Condemning someone is the job of a judge, and the Bible tells us that Jesus is the righteous judge, but we are not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Catch that. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose, purposes of the heart. That's what God does. He finds out what's hidden and brings it to light at the right and proper time. Only God can see what's hidden in the darkness. Only he knows the true issues in our heart. Have you ever condemned someone and then you met their parents and then you went, oh, they're doing pretty well actually compared to where they've come from, right? You ever done that? You ever condemned someone for something they were doing in your heart and then you found out what was going on in their life behind the scenes? You went, oh, well, no wonder they responded that way. God is able to see the things that are hidden behind. 
We have no right to condemn because we cannot adequately judge that which is hidden. I shared last night one of our 12 expectations as a staff. Another one of those expectations here is believe the best of each other's motives. Believe the best of each other's motives. I mean, let's be honest. I don't always know my own motives, let alone somebody else's motives. I can say, well, I know why they did that. They did that because of this and this. We really don't know that. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Expectation number three of his leaders, forgive. Forgive and you will be forgiven. This must have been mind-blowing to them. I doubt if forgiveness was a high priority on the list of the Pharisees, but that would be a judgmental statement, right? (laughs) Legalistic people like to hear apologies, but they don't necessarily like to give them, and they certainly don't like to let people off the hook. One of the truths in the Bible that that is difficult sometimes to grasp is that God's forgiveness comes to us when we forgive others, but doesn't get extended when we don't forgive. This is what it says here. This could be a sermon in and of itself, but Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do not judge, we're not to condemn, but we're to forgive. Forgiven, you will be forgiven. Here's the expectation. Forgiven people forgive. Because we've been forgiven by God, we should be forgiving others who aren't perfect either, is the point. People who are given a break should give a break to somebody else who needs one. Don't judge, don't condemn, forgive. Expectation number four, and then give. Give, give, and it will be given to you, verse 38. The Pharisees, it appears, were more takers than givers, but Jesus tells his followers to give, to be generous, and in being generous to others, God is going to be generous back to them. Verse 38, again, says, given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The word picture that Jesus uses here is that of a bushel basket, one that is filled to the brim. Its contents are pressed down and shaken to make room for more. And yet, even by doing so, the basket overflows and its content comes into one's lap. It's referring to generosity and to abundance. And here's what he's saying. He's teaching that instead of being harsh to people, forgive them, and show some tangible kindness by giving them what they need. Yeah, sinful people. And by being generous to others, God's going to be generous back to us. I really like how Eugene Peterson in the message puts these two verses, 37 and 38. He says, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. Don't condemn those who are down. That hardness can boomerang. Be easy on people. You'll find life a lot easier. Give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. 
Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. Don't judge, don't condemn, forgive, give. So let me ask a very practical and yet, in my opinion, a difficult question. In a world that is so messed up, with so many things out of whack, with so many people living lives contrary to God, how do we live life in such a way as to not be judgmental, condemning, but forgiving and giving? And here's the answer. Let God be the judge. He's perfect without hypocrisy. It doesn't mean that I still don't have a high standard. It doesn't mean that I still try to live in holiness. Certainly, I need to do that. But ultimately, he's the judge that people stand in front of and not me. Both Jesus and God are referred to in the Bible as being a righteous judge, meaning a judge who judges rightly and not wrongly. But here's the reality if we try to be the judge. The reality is this. What we dish out, we will eat. (laughs) For with a measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Because we have sin in our life, we need to be extremely careful about judging sin in somebody else's life because who are we when we have our own issues as well? Let the one who is without sin be the judge. Because we got our own issues with our own sin. And Jesus goes one step further by using a memorable analogy that if you spend any time in the Bible, this is familiar to you. Verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of that is in your brother's eye. (laughs) Here's the problem. We're blind to our own shortcomings. Oh, we can see everybody else's really well, but we're blind to our own shortcomings. This is what Jesus is saying. Hey, Graham, you got a speck in your eye, dude. You need to do something with that. You need to get that speck out. That's ridiculous. Can't you see that you have a speck in your eye? You see the harm that it's doing to you in your life and to those around you? Can you not see that? And Graham's response is, You got a log there, mate, he just said. (laughs) What? Can't Can't you see the log coming out of your own eye? Seriously? You're telling me to wipe a speck and you got a log in your own eye? It's ridiculous, right? 
And yet, how many times have I done that? You got problems in your life, and in my heart, I condemn. But I'm okay with the stuff in my life because it's not as bad as what's in your life. You're worse than me, so I'm better than you. Hmm. I mentioned uh, yesterday that for most all of my adult life, I pastored two churches. The church that where we were in Colorado, in Littleton, there for 14 years, we made a major shift in, in worship style. And uh, it was a pretty volatile shift over, over time. Um, I seriously don't think that there's any possible criticism of worship that I have not personally heard. I don't think you can come up with a, a new one. I really don't. I think I've heard them all. And they aggravated me. And that we were fighting over the worship of God. And at the same time, I get it. Because there's style and preference. So, while we were still in Colorado, uh, while a lot of this was still going on, Jane and I took our two youngest kids to um, a concert, a Christian concert at Red Rocks Amphitheater, which is like the Hollywood Bowl of Colorado. It's just, but all the more beautiful. It's in these Red Rocks, and it's outdoors, and you can see Denver off in the distance, and it's a pretty amazing place. The main attraction for the concert was Toby Mac. So if you know him, he's, let's just say, he's actually my age, but far, far, far cooler, my kids would say, <laughs> than, than I am. And that's definitely true. But there was, you know, the, the pre-band warm-up groups, whatever you want to call them. I w they don't like to be called that, I'm sure. But the groups before the big event. One of those groups came out, and they were a heavy metal Christian band. They came out, their jeans were all torn up, their shirts were just weird, they had bandanas on their head, and, and um, their music was incredibly loud. And we were sitting on the fifth row on the right side, and in front of us was a bank of speakers at least 20 feet high and very wide, and I kid you not, as the drum beats would go, my heart would flutter. Like, like it's not supposed to do that. And my hair would move from the speaker, because the oomph from the speakers, and I wear gel, okay? I mean, I'm serious. And I sat there, and I'm thinking, this is not right. This does not please God. Look at how these guys look. And I can't even understand the words, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking this in my, you know, I can't wait till this is over. And then I looked to our left, and there were our two teenage kids standing with their arms raised to heaven, doing every word from the song, worshiping God. 
And I looked beyond them, and there were thousands of teenagers, not a hundred, thousands of teenagers with their arms lifted, worshiping God. <laughs> and I said to myself, I have become one of those people. <laughs> I had. And I made a vow that night to God. I will never, ever criticize worship. I never met those guys in the band. I don't know their hearts. I can't judge the words because I couldn't understand them. <laughs> the volume, it just shows I was getting older. But those teenagers, how much do you pay as a, as a parent for your teenagers to have an encounter with God through worship. Hmm. Watch out for the log to try to get out somebody else's speck. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't get high and mighty. All have sinned, including including me. This isn't about lowering standards. It's about being above other people because you think that your sins are less than theirs. We are not above anyone else because we are like everyone else because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Every one of us. Because here's the reality. God is holy and the only way to get to a holy God is through holiness. But since we're all sinners, how is that going to happen? We're all lost and in need of a Savior. No matter what the list of sins are, you say, well, I, I just gossip every once in a while. I speed every once in a while. I, I make an offhanded comment every once in a while. It's nothing big. It still separates us from a holy God. One little sin does that. None of us are perfect. That is why grace, that's why mercy, that's why forgiveness are all big parts of the salvation story because no one matches up. No, not one. And that makes these words all the more amazing. When it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we get in Christ Jesus? It's by accepting him as our, as our Savior and our Lord. It's by him forgiving our sins and cleansing us from the inside out, no matter what the level of sin. He's the one that provides that. Once we have asked for the forgiveness of our sins and claimed Jesus as the one to be our Lord and Savior, our sins are completely cleaned up, washed away, no matter the level of them. Because even one little one separates us from a holy God. You know John 3.16, probably. Very famous, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Great words. But what about the next verse? 
For God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. People think that God is this this guy with all of these rules and rigidity. As was talked about this morning. But he's a God of relationship. Of relationship. He did not come to condemn us, but to save us. So that we could have eternal life with him forever in heaven. The perfect one took me as I was, didn't judge me, didn't condemn me, but forgave me and gave me the gift of eternal life. And if the perfect one would do that to me, a sinner, should we not do the same to other sinners like us? At Mount Hermon, we often just kind of assume that everyone who comes here has kind of got this thing figured out, but we know that's not the case. And I'm so glad that there are people here literally every single week, it seems, that God touches and for the first time they give their life to Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you today that it doesn't matter how good you try to be. And you think you're going to get to heaven because you're better than most people around you. And you, you know, you give money here and there to good causes and you try to be a good citizen and you've raised your kids as well as you possibly could and you've gotten involved in, in other philanthropic opportunities. You're a good person. The truth of the matter is all it takes is one sin to separate you from a holy God. And the only way to be made right with him is to be forgiven of your sin. And you get forgiven of your sin by asking Jesus to forgive you because he paid the price for your sin on the cross. Because this is what you need to hear. There is a day coming called the judgment day. It's a real day. And the righteous judge will judge and determine who goes to heaven, who does not, based upon their decisions on this earth about Jesus. And if your sins are forgiven... No condemnation, no matter what you've done, you're clean before God. Eternity in heaven. If you've never asked for the forgiveness of your sins, you've never embraced Jesus as your Savior, no matter how good of a person you've been, you don't get in. The one who can judge us the most is the one who offers us the gift of eternal life, forgiveness, grace to us. I want to lead us in a prayer, and if you have never yourself asked the Lord to become your Savior, you've never asked for the forgiveness of your sin, I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to say words, but you make it from your heart and you make it your words to the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. If you want to pray this prayer, to just say, Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I'm in need of a Savior, and I want to be forgiven of my sin. I ask you to pray this prayer with me right now.
Dear Lord God, thank you for loving me. Lord, I acknowledge tonight that I am a sinner. I'm in need of a Savior. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin. All of it. Clean me up from the inside out. And make me new. Lord, I want to live for you the perfect one, that although you're perfect, you extend to me the gift of eternal life. You did not come to condemn me, but you came to save me. So Lord, I ask you to save me so I will be with you forever in eternity. If you prayed that prayer tonight, I want you to tell someone tonight. Don't wait till tomorrow. Tell someone tonight. Tell someone that you know will celebrate with you of that decision tonight. Dear Lord, you love prayers like that probably more than any other prayer. Lord, we're amazed at the truth that we who are sinners that you came for us. You died for us. You rose again for us so that we might have eternal life with you. You did not come to condemn us, although we're sinners. You came to forgive us and to give us eternal life. Lord, it's so easy to think that we're better than somebody else or more high and mighty than somebody else because we do less bad things than somebody else. Lord, May we not judge and not condemn, but may we forgive and may we give. And let you be the judge. Thank you, dear Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.